Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public about prevention and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Whitney Jones, a gastroenterologist and founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, we're speaking with Letitia Thompson, the Vice President in Cancer Control for the American Cancer Society in the South Region. Letitia has worked for the American Cancer Society for 22 years and most recently as the Vice President of Health Systems for the former Mid-South Division. Prior her to work at the Society, Letitia had a long history in the field of public health and advocacy. She's held positions in Medicaid, Medicare, the Mississippi State Department of Health, Merck Vaccine Division, the Partnership for a Health in Mississippi and Youth Control Program. Welcome to Cancer Fight, Letitia Thompson. Thank you. It's good to see you again, Dr. Whitney <laughs> Whitney Jones. I started to call you Houston. I was going to give you an upgrade. <laughs> are, are the people in Jackson starting to talk about how this appears to be a hot and humid summer like it has every year? This is about that time. We're hearing that in Louisville. You know, um, not as much talk about the weather with all the things going on. There's a lot more talk about COVID and, of course, in Yeah, well, we're going to touch on that. Okay. For sure. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about you, uh, okay. where you started from, how you got to where you are today. I'd love to hear your story. Well, I would be glad to share it. So I was, I grew up in a very small farming town in North Mississippi, Coffeyville, Mississippi, and it was about 30 miles south of the University of Mississippi. And the population, it was one of those towns that would have uh, been saluted on the former show Hee Haw because it was that small and it's even smaller now. But I did, I did go on to go, I didn't go crazy far from home to get a quality education. I did go to the University of Mississippi and got my master's degree at, at an HBCU here in Jackson, Jackson State, in public policy and administration. But um, I guess I'm one of those folks that has uh, decided to give myself the challenge of staying in Mississippi to raise my family and to, to grow my career. There is, uh, there's a lot to love about this state. There's a lot to hate about this state but it's, it's my home state. So I was, I was one who chose to stay and fight from within. A lot of people say that uh, doing public health work in Mississippi is a little bit like working for the Peace Corps in some third world countries. And of course, I know that the same kind of thing can exist in Kentucky as well, but it can be very frustrating and gratifying to work in public health in a field where there's so much need in a state where there's so much need and where progress can be maddeningly slow. So um, my husband is retired, but he is retired from both the military. And he also was the director of the Mississippi State HIV STD program. So that's actually one of my first loves in public health as well. I worked for the health department for a long time and I set up their Ryan White drug program and community health program. The, I was the one who set that up for Mississippi. So there were certainly a lot of things to learn there. 
and I have two adopted daughters. They are amazing. They are both African-American. They both were born with HIV because that was at a time when there were very few foster families for children back in the, you know, in the early 90s and late 90s when my daughters were born that were willing to take on a child in Mississippi or anywhere for that matter. And of course, the second we met them was the second that we said, okay, foster parent be damned, we're going to adopt these girls. So they're 24 and 21 now. The oldest graduated from college last week, last week, last year, and she gave us a grandson three months ago. So um, they are quarantining with us right now, and that's uh, every bad phone call I get off of, I go pick that baby up. <laughs> it seems to make the world right. And of course, I've been with the American Cancer Society for 22 years, and you know, HIV, AIDS is, is definitely one of my first loves, but the work that I've been able to do with a great organization like ACS has truly made for a fulfilling career. It's the longest I've ever worked anywhere, and it's the happiest I've ever been anywhere. Well, let me ask you a question. You had been at a lot of state organizations prior to that, Medicaid, Medicare. These are large bureaucracies. How did your experience in those organizations shape your approach when you joined the American Cancer Society? I would, I definitely wouldn't flip it. I wouldn't have done it any other way. The work that I did with Medicaid patients and writing policy for Medicaid, and certainly the work that I did in Medicare, and that was mainly around disability determination. Then the work that I did for the health department, you know, um, everybody has their path, led them to where they are. I wouldn't change a thing about it. I think it's really important in public health. Um, and a lot of people may think, well, Cancer Society is not a public health organization, but really it is. So when you think about things that I learned about working within bureaucratic lines and the things that state agencies have to do just to get to do what they want to do and how dependent they are on how the economy is doing in their state, how dependent they are on what their legislators pass, and still find a way to do a tremendous amount of good. And it was certainly very good uh, preparation for working off of a shoestring budget. Because <laughs> state, you know, the budgeting that they get is, is dependent on a lot of different things, but it's never enough to meet the need. And when you're working in state government in Mississippi, you know, the need is huge. The, uh, the opportunities are as big as all of outdoors and resources like every in every other field, they're scarce. But knowing how those organizations that serve our population 65 and older, the poorest of the poor in our states, and then just in public health in general, it was tremendous preparation for when I got to an organization that still operates on a shoestring but I did not have some of the confines that I had when I worked in state agencies. It helped me better bridge that gap. It helped me basically when I started with the American Cancer Society, very involved with volunteers, very involved with our donors, very, very involved, of course, with our cancer patients and those we were hoping to get screened, but much more of a standalone, not as a community collaborative, as, as I was used to, 
So that was one of my early and still goals is that the ACS be where the people are, where the communities are, because I really do believe that much like, you know, like politics, public health is local. And local can be your state legislature, or it can be your mayor, or it can just be the, the community that you live in. So I have really worked hard to see the American Cancer Society go to the people and not the other way around. And I, I think that working in the communities and in state agencies helped me. It helped, uh, it helped hone that skill set in me. And even though you spoke about Mississippi and native daughter and being there and working, you had up a huge and newly developed division of the ACS called the South Corridor, which feels like the South and the Southwest, uh, avoiding the states on the ocean, but everybody else in the middle. So we're not used to being with our buddies out in Arizona and Texas, but as a former Texan, uh, at least for seven years, I appreciate it. Tell us about the restructuring, and then I want to follow that with some questions about how COVID has been affecting the work that the ACS has been doing. Well, you know, the American Cancer Society is, is constantly seeking ways to be efficient in administration. We want as much of the donor dollar, and I mean, when we talk about our donors, most of our donors come to us a dollar, ten dollars, five dollars at a time. There are the big donors, but we're a very grassroots organization, and we have over two million volunteers across the country. So that makes a big difference when you think about, well, I'm going to spend this dollar on brochures versus I could spend this dollar going out and working with the Federally Qualified Health Center to see how we can blend our resources and increase colorectal cancer screening. So in doing that, we have gone, I mean, we at one time were 50 states and several territories had their own American Cancer Society. And over the years, we have gradually started to go into sort of a regional system and those regions have gotten bigger and that's good in many ways and it's 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 challenging in other ways one thing i can tell you is that the south region is arizona new mexico texas oklahoma louisiana arkansas mississippi and alabama and it's my goal to get and let everybody know it's my goal for tennessee and kentucky to join the south region again because i miss those states drastically but they're, it's not what people typically think of as the South. And the interesting thing was Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico and Arizona were like, we don't want to be called the South. There's such a negative connotation, not just about, you know, racism and poverty, but also about the poor health outcomes that, that are so common to Southern states and, you know, the struggle that we have with the social determinants of health. But it's, it's uh, and you can imagine the first call that we had in the first meeting that we had when they met me and heard this voice, they're like, oh my God, we're not in New Mexico anymore. I'm pretty sure they shaved 20 points off my IQ, but that's always my secret weapon. I walk into a room and I speak with this accent and then I, and then I dazzle you with my IQ and my personality. But it is a big region and it does incorporate a lot of different cultures. So that's one thing we've had to be very careful to do is do a lot of listening and really let the communities inform us. And 
definitely our strategies are not one size fits all, not by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, Whitney, I think that's probably true of most areas of the country. Um, there are certain areas that are more alike than others, but all of the states that I work with have very poor health outcomes, a lot to overcome in terms of poverty, in terms of education, in terms of diet and physical activity. So I think that we found we have a lot more in common than we do different. But you've been able to find those common themes that might connect people in the Southwest, traditional Southwest, uh, those of Hispanic origins or Native Americans with what we see in the South and Appalachia, because you still you still have some Appalachia in your in your region. I hope I always have some Appalachia. That's where I come from. Yeah, it, you know the messages have to be different, and some and even the way you approach the conversations have to be different. I think that it's been an awakening for me and some of my staff that live in what's traditionally thought of as the South you know, that certain areas of the country, you don't start every conversation with how's your mama and your family. You know, we, we dance around and then after we, we genuinely exchange pleasantries, then we're like, well, let's do some business. So I think the big thing is that we have to accommodate for the difference in cultures because with the Hispanic culture, with the American native culture, Western medicine considered very different just even dealing with, and I know there's some of this in some states, but certainly in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, the immigrant population, very reticent to get involved in anything, prevention and early detection, and probably delay treatment because of, of concerns about their citizenship. And I think that, again, just looking at the way people perceive medicine and how they access medicine. And is the provider population in any way analogous to the indigenous population? Because we know that providers, certainly unintentionally, may practice medicine differently than the populations that they're serving because they grew up with their own culture and their background. So what we've had to really do is focus on what are the big things? you know, there's more to do in cancer than we could literally stake a, you know, shake a stick at, but we've had to really focus on what can we do, because we are limited in our staff. Our volunteers are an amazing extender of the work our staff do, but we've had to really focus on certain areas like HPV vaccination, like colorectal colorectal cancer, certainly continuing with breast cancer and increasingly lung cancer screening. Because of course, as you know, as we look at it in cancer, we look at what are the big killers. And that sounds morose, but that's what people want us to do, to help prevent them from dying of cancer and then for help, help them prevent from getting it. So it's, it's really looking at how is tobacco perceived by culture. How are, how are invasive procedures like, you know, colonoscopy perceived by cultures? And definitely taking into account in this culture, are we more likely to get somebody to go for a fit test for colorectal cancer screening? Um, if we get them in for lung cancer screening, are we taking advantage of providing with cessation? So it's not an annual get out of jail free card. My screen was good. I'm going to go get that pack of cigarettes. 
So just, just knowing the different ways that cultures, and certainly um, if you look across all of the South, Arizona to Alabama, we love to eat. We, uh, we love to eat fruits and vegetables, but we prefer it if they're fried. And uh, we really like to have some meat with those. So just knowing who we are and really taking that into account and kind of looking at people on the spectrum of where might they be on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If somebody is down on those security and food and safety levels, like a lot of people have returned to these days, getting screened or quitting smoking or so many of the things that we have for can be very far removed from their day-to-day -day existence. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing spectrum of people that you're dealing with across the South. I know as many different cultures as there are, one culture we're all part of now is the digital tribe. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit to COVID's effect on the American Cancer Society, as well as perhaps how this digital world we're living in may be erasing some of those prior artificial boundaries? Well, I'm, you know, erasing some and increasing some. I think that with everything, COVID-19, as with any other pandemic this country has seen, and this certainly is not the first and it won't be the last, but, it, you know, it's nature's way of saying change some things. One of the things that I think that the American Cancer Society is greatly concerned about, well, actually many things, obviously fundraising. So, you know, we spend a lot of money and put a lot of effort into seed research and funding for seed research that's, you know, not ready for prime time with the government or with private industry. So we are for the first time looking at not being able to fund in the fall all of the researchers that we have been funding annually and we're used to the dollars going up every year. So to see the dollars go down and it's not just that it's, you know, offensive to us or a pride point. We know that for every researcher we don't fund, it can set that research back 10 to 20 years. And we don't want to slow the train on the progress that's happening in terms of how do we prevent cancer, new screenings and technologies, and then certainly new and better treatments. The other thing is with cancer screening. I mean, you're a doctor, you know, essential things that we have felt like have to kind of go to the wayside during this, this pandemic. One of those has been screening. So, you know, some of the new statistics now are showing that screening is down 29% or more, depending on what the screening is for. And of course, with HPV vaccination, our desire to help prevent those six cancers that are HPV related. And we know that immunization rates are just, they have just taken a nosedive in every state, even the states that had good rates, because pediatricians and family practice docs are reluctant to bring a child in. So I think a lot of people thought, well, we'll have a lull, and then we'll get everybody back in. Well, the South did not have a lull, and, you know, people talk about, well, it's the second wave of COVID. No, it's not. It's the first wave of COVID. <laughs> and it's a result and has been exacerbated by Southern states opening their doors. And, you know, we got a lot of state rights states in Mississippi. And one thing that all the states that I have in common is they're very red, not just from the heat maps on health outcomes, but also from the way that their political leanings go. 
So we really had to fight with, you know, the politicians and the state businesses who are trying to make that difficult balance between opening the income back up and the country not going into a depression and then seeing a spike in COVID cases. Well, I think that we have lost on the spike in COVID cases. So we're very concerned how much further that's going to drive. And of course, we will see 10 to 20 years from now the impact of that with increased colorectal cancer diagnoses, certainly finding, you know, breast cancer in later stages. And, uh, you know, the impact that we had, the progress that we hope to gain with HPV vaccination and lung cancer screening, those things are just not going to happen right now unless we can do what I think that this pandemic offers us the opportunity to do and look at different ways of, past, of, of practicing medicine. One of the things that I think that you see with anything like this is it can bring out the best in people. It can also bring out and make crystal clear the cracks in our medical system and the cracks in who's covered and who's not covered. So people who were disenfranchised and people who were, you know, isolated somewhat from access to care because of just their, their zip code, the social factors in their life, now you add COVID-19 to that. And it's isolation to the 10th power. And not having health care during a time like this, I'm glad that it has shed light for this country on the great divide that there is between the haves and the have-nots. And by that, I don't just mean money. I mean those who have health care coverage. So, so many of the southern states that did not choose to expand Medicaid and take advantage of some of those Medicaid, those government dollars, I have serious concerns. I live in one of those states. Um, in my region, I've got one state that expanded Medicaid, Arkansas. I did have to when we had Kentucky, but you know, when, when I look at the percentage of people that are covered because of that Medicaid expansion, and then I look at what your, co what your colorectal cancer rates were, better than 70%, the only two states in the South that can come anywhere close to that. So I'm, I'm hoping that this gives governments a chance to rethink how we're taking care of our people and an opportunity to say, okay, these are not great economic times, but what's the economic burden to our state in having our ICUs to the brink and having our, you know, our employees not well enough to go to work, even businesses can open. So we certainly want to try and find ways. And, and I think there's a great promise through, through telemedicine and telehealth. So I'm very excited to see payers start to look at that start to realize that the only way we're ever going to decrease the, the distance between some people and their doctor is through a Zoom call or a phone call or, you know, a telephone call or a, a face, Facebook. There's just lots of ways that I'm glad to see providers start to get reimbursed for things that they've known for a really long time would help them increase their, the socialization of them with their patients and be able to treat new patients. I had my wellness visit this year by a Zoom call. Now, I've got, to go, I've got to go into the lab and I've got to have tests done, but you know, what might we do with fit testing to try and keep colorectal cancer rates up if we could partner 
fit testing, you know, mailing it out, finding ways to get it back in and partner it with this face-to-face -face kind of, of situation. Because I know we think of that technology automatically puts poor people and certain, you know, races at a disadvantage. And I personally think that that's a, that's, that's a theory that we have to test. Because I don't know what it was like the last time you went into the AT&T or the Verizon store, but I know that the best computing capability that most people have out there now who are dealing with, with health inequity is a smartphone. I mean, let's face it, you don't see a lot of, of flip phones. And it, I think that it's going to be interesting to find out how many people that were using FaceTime to talk to to their families that are using it now to hold their family reunions. More and more people are having to, the necessity of this pandemic is that you're having to use technology to communicate. So for God's sake, let's take advantage of it in healthcare. Let's not make assumptions about people that may not be true. Don't offer me something because, don't, don't refuse to offer me something because you think I can't take advantage of it. Let me try and take advantage of something you have to offer me. Well, certainly all around the world, the advent of cellular technology has been a leapfrog moment culturally. Many places in Africa utilize cell phone technology for health, reporting, yeah. as well as banking. So there is that opportunity, I think, and certainly a lot of entrepreneurs trying to accelerate that. So right. we shall but see. We and I, to, We have to compensate practitioners for that, too. You know, I, I can't, I cannot do a, uh, a dental cleaning over Zoom, but I could do my wellness visit over Zoom. But we have to find a way for our providers to be able to earn an income practicing medicine when, if they're not in specialty care, or if they're not in trauma care, they're paid, they're not bringing their patients in. I think that that's 100%. My concerns also are how do we better engage the health insurers who have all the data, they know exactly who's had what, who's had a colonoscopy, and if you've already cleaned your closet out three times and mulched your yard until your trees are dying, perhaps we could reshift some of that focus towards cancer prevention and screening, as you said, with take-at-home stool tests, yeah. uh, such as FIT or stool DNA. Same thing with family history collection. There's lots of things we can do to advance. Tobacco cessation. 100%. If we, if providers, I mean, what better time? It's like you said, you know, you've got our attention and you've got our time now. And providers have, I don't, I, you know, I'm not going to speak. I'm not a provider, but I would imagine this might be a good time to have some conversations about quitting smoking and e-prescribing and having it delivered from the pharmacy. So there are so many things that I think that this really does. It brings to the forefront, sheds light on it. And I do think that we've got to find ways to practice medicine in this environment. It's because I'm hoping that those health plans are having their actuarials being very busy telling them people not getting to go to the doctor, something that, you know, that deductibles and co-pays have always been deterrents for that, it's going to come back now. It's going to come back to them when people have to go in through the emergency room. They've all, it's always been there. 
but I'm hoping that in light of this pandemic that can impact everybody, it's not just the disease of, of you know, of the gay folks, it's not just a disease of black, black folks, it's a disease that impacts everybody, that we're going to get more two-to prevention in this country. We're going to realize COVID may not have been preventable. Colorectal cancer in many cases was. HPV-related cancers certainly were. And I think it's also an opportunity to have people while they're at home examine their physical activity and their diet. So I see a big silver lining in all of this. And what I hope is that when they come up with an effective vaccine for COVID, that parents are also getting their children updated on HPV, updated on measles, updated because, you know, the likelihood that we're going to see outbreaks of vaccine preventable diseases is great. I had read the statistics that they think there'll be 10,000 more cancer deaths just based on the delays that we've already seen. That's exactly. and, I had see, and I had seen some statistics suggesting that screenings were down in March and April, the peaks of these months, by over 95%. That is true. And, it, you know, I think people were starting to get back into the, the, the swing in the South of scheduling those screenings, and boom, you know. So, for God's sake, wear a mask. <laughs> I just can't say it enough. Um, I cannot believe that we've in any way politicized this issue. And um, I'm really, uh, I'm hoping people realize how dependent we are on public health in this nation. I hope it brings to the forefront that not just healthcare, but practicing public health, good old John Snow, if you've got cholera in the pump, don't let anybody use it. So I'm really that that's something that I hope it helps people hold their health more precious because we had definitely gotten away from that in this country. And I think it's also interesting, you and I share a very close uh, relationship to the HIV epidemic. And I have always looked at that as a model for advocacy and for how to change things as difficult as yeah. it was. I lived in Dallas in 1987 to 19, that was well, a, to, right in the peak of it. So that Dallas Buyers Club. <laughs> for sure. so I want, I want to explore a little bit because you. Yeah. this is the first time I'd known about your daughters and, and, and that whole piece. I want to sort of go through that. That virus is one that people may not even know much about because that's that's right. pretty far gone and uh, HIV's become a hopefully well-known how to prevent but also a manageable chronic disease. Chronic illness, yes. What, what, what did you learn from the HIV experience, both as an adoptive parent as well as a public health person, that helped shape how you approach your cancer fight? And you are cancer fight to the ACS, running a fifth of the country. Uh, it's important, the work you do. What did you learn that helps you with shaping your actions today? One of the things that I learned, I've kind of spoken of previously. When I first came to the American Cancer Society, it's very interesting. My first interview with the American Cancer Society, I had not disclosed anything about my children. And I love the woman who interviewed me and hired me, was smart enough to hire me, even though after, after I popped off this sassy, sarcastic mouth. And she said, you know, the thing that just chaps me is the amount of funding that this country puts into HIV research versus cancer. And I said, well, first, 
my two daughters are HIV positive and second, anything that we learn about the immune system benefits every other disease state that's out there. So any funding that's going into research around genetics and the immune system, any love is good love. So <laughs> we basically, one of the things that I told them is there's a lot that we can learn about advocacy from the HIV community. They are out there and they are in the forefront of everything saying, yes, I'm gay, so what? I shouldn't have to die because of it. Or yes, I'm African-American, so what? I shouldn't have to die because of it. And their efforts at community mobilization, not just for advocacy, but for prevention and education. And it, I mean, you could not go into any impacted community in Mississippi and not see just a groundswell of people out there spreading the message, trying not to spread the disease. And I think that that's when I said to the American Cancer Society, we have got to take to the streets. We have got to not just be going to the galas and to the relays, we've got to go to the hood. We've got to go to the community health centers we got to go places where people are that, that drastically need our help that are not going to come to us. They're not, there's nobody that's going to come up to me at the Walmart and say, tell me about colorectal cancer screening. They might now because I wear buttons that say, ask me about colorectal cancer screening. But that's something that has helped me so much because at the time I joined the American Cancer Society, they weren't, their focus was not as public health. And to their credit, they brought in a lot of folks from public health. And they said, okay, because, you know, we were a very big on brochures at that time. Um, like Sherman, Will Sherman Williams covers the planet with paint. We have covered the world three times over with shower cards and brochures. And if that were going to work, we would have very little incidence or very low cancer burden. So that's, that's what working in public health taught me is you go to the people. You don't sit there with amazing knowledge and amazing resources and wait for the people to come to you. And I think that even in public health, I think that the HIV, when you look at the trajectory of HIV and you look at the trajectory of COVID, I think so many people have Whitney forgotten about it. HIV came out of nowhere. It's not like HIV was to our world a, a life. It's not like it was smallpox or polio or cancer. HIV burst onto the scene out of nowhere, spread like wildfire before we really knew how it spread. There were no vaccines for it. And that's the thing I want to say. There's no vaccine for it today. <laughs> you know, right. HIV really started to grip this country in the 70s and the 80s. I think about things I did in high school and college that made me have the hair stand up on the back of my neck because I didn't have any idea that things that everybody thought, well, you think about it, things that feel good, doing drugs, having sex, those things feel good. So while we have a huge success story and what can be done through public health and through education and prevention and because it, but it took a long time through medicine, 
HIV is now a chronic disease. You can become absolutely, you know, your viral load can be so low, it's not even transmissible anymore. But one thing that I think that, um, and of course the stigma that came with HIV. So what I've learned as being a parent of two girls with HIV is that it can, it cannot be understated how socially isolating that disease is. You can't, I mean, my girls were adolescents, my girls, you know, they're girls, they're kids, they were teenagers. Can't have sex with somebody if you don't tell them that you've got a virus that's mm. infectious and could kill them. You know, they don't want to tell their classmates, they don't want their teachers to know, because sure. with that diagnosis comes a scarlet letter A. So that is one thing that I think, and I know cancer was there some in the 40s and 50s, and for some cultures, it still means exactly that. But as we're looking at COVID, I'm hoping this country does as well, treating COVID as we did HIV. And I hope we don't forget, HIV is still here. COVID may never go away. We're trying to treat it like, oh God, this is a bad time, but it's going to go away. It may mm-hmm. never. I and agree. HIV changed the way we had sex. COVID may very well change the way that we do a lot of things too. When I think of the advocates for HIV and AIDS, the, the two words that come to my mind are courage, mm-hmm. because they were truly courageous, as you said, and I think anyone that, that shines their light is courageous. The other word is relentless. Yeah. They were not to be denied. And I just can remember so vividly people breaking up Senate committees and throwing balloons and, you know, being but in a race. Steps of the legislature, even here in Mississippi. And right. of course, you know, that may seem drastic, but, you know, it, it through HIV, we learned so many things about a lot of, uh, of bloodborne pathogens. And that is that, you know, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, they don't get as much press, but, you're right, they would not go away. And of course, it's an amazing visual to see somebody that is covered in, you know, covered in cancer and wasting away to see people that were abandoned by their families, abandoned by their faith because they chose to love. Right. And, but what I saw them do was, I saw public health step up and say, we're going to find a way. This is preventable, for God's sakes. Let's get out there and do it. And, I'm, you know, I'm still looking for that magic connector that can allow us to do the same thing with cancer. How much cancer is preventable? Well, I would say the money we've spent on COVID, if we would have addressed that much capital towards either HIV or cancer, we certainly couldn't get rid of sporadics, but we could certainly do many things with regards to screening. So I think a lot of that's commitment. Another yeah. another uh, piece of courage, which is that it's hard to get it going and it's hard to get that going. So speaking of that, as you as you come into this new year, the changing ACS uh, paradigm, the changing medical paradigm across the country, what do you see as your greatest challenge and what are you going to do to make sure the people in the ACS southern region top those charts this year oh wow to top them which way which charts Whitney the I positive have- charts <laughs> for cancer prevention 
cancer control, cancer prevention, all the things that we work to. We know that cancer is out there and it, it affects people. We're not able to completely get rid of it. No. But much of what we can do is implement the things that we already have in press that are approved and widely accepted. So I really want to try and do, I've, I've talked about some of these things. Public health is taking somewhat of a forefront. You're having some people resist it, but the majority of people are washing their hands, they're wearing their masks, they're trying to social distance. So I want to get back to the basics of public health, and that is do the things that you know that can prevent cancer, do the things that you know can treat cancer early. Because I, I want to be able to say right now, there's nothing you can do other than public health prevention of COVID-19 to prevent someone from getting COVID-19. There's no medicine. There's some promises. There is no vaccine. There may never be. It may take as long as HIV did. It may come out next week. But to just, um, as people are getting ready for flu season, remind them that there's fit testing that can be done. I want to take advantage of the things that providers are learning about technology to, in, to ingrain in that, the cancer screening guidelines, vaccination guidelines, certainly tobacco and tobacco cessation. I want us to continue. We do a lot of lobbying and advocacy with health plans. I want to continue to push them and say, hopefully at least now there is an economic model behind it that lets you see that telehealth and telemedicine is something we've needed for a long time. Let's find ways to support our providers and let's find ways to pay for it. And um, we are with the American Cancer Society right now working with federally qualified health centers and hospitals and practices across the country to help guide them on what are some safe ways that you can start to get your patients back in. They may not come in and fill your waiting rooms up like they did, but let's start talking about some ways that even if COVID doesn't go away, because Whitney, I don't know that we know when it's going to go away. I concur um, with that. Well, being, being someone who is, is in the field of epidemiology and public health, I'm like, yeah, you guys are, it was going to go away in the summer. The heat was going to make it go away. No, we opened the beaches back up. When we turn around and we hit fall and we've got COVID-19 and flu season, so we do want to try and work with healthcare to say, let's keep folks out of the hospital. I understand that they don't want to do anything elective, but I don't think a colonoscopy is elective. I don't think a mammogram is elective. So I think we've got to work with the healthcare industry and with providers to say, these are not elective things. These are life-saving things. We've got to find a way to continue to do them. And, you know, certainly I want to see us working with states during this time to say this is not the time to have a lot of your population uninsured. So we're working very hard to expand Medicaid. Probably our next big battleground is Oklahoma, not battleground in the sense that we're fighting the legislators, but saying here is a way to even the playing field for people. Here's a way to get people health care for whatever COVID may bring, but for everything. And so Medicaid expansion is still something we will be aggressively pursuing across the states and hoping that we find ways to say, you are seeing the impact of people in your state not having health care. 
your hospitals are going broke due to uncompensated care. Absolutely. And we're going to destroy our health system if we don't share the burden of health care through states' way to pay for it and for health plans upping their game. Um, health plans are not the enemy. They can be our best friend, but they cannot continue to um, produce record profits when the providers that are actually doing the service and the people that they're there to serve are going broke and getting sick and staying that way. Yeah. And, and the same with hospitals are actually really struggling right now. Hospitals are, hospitals are desperately struggling. Desperate. And the revenue streams that help pay for a lot of that uncompensated care right now have dried up. So we've got to find a balance. And now, you know, if this country needs to invest in some bricks and mortar, so that we maybe need to separate more of the things that are preventive and screening further away from whatever we need to do, we need to do it. But we cannot afford for hospitals in this country to go broke. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about cancer on a broad topic, but at the end of the day, you know, a person gets cancer, an individual. Can you talk a little bit to that person who might have just heard today that they have a cancer diagnosis of what kind of things the American Cancer Society can bring to the table to help that person? So we are very involved in getting our transportation, keeping our transportation services. You know, Whitney, we look at our National Cancer Information Center. And it's one of the ways that gives us the pulse on what is it that the cancer patient and the caregiver need. And some of it is like, well, duh, they need help with lodging, they need help with transportation, they need help with information. But in COVID-19, cancer patients are increasingly isolated. Um, doctors are deferring. You know, doctors are doing their best to try and decide and, and God help them with a cancer patient trying to decide what is the risk of bringing my immunosuppressed patient into the hospital for this what is the risk of deferring it or delaying it? And because cancer patients are immunosuppressed, the increased isolation is, it's a bigger deal than most people think. So we have had to cut services because of the economy, like many other businesses and nonprofits have. But one of the things that we've done that I love is we're offering FaceTime and video capability when patients call into our National Cancer Information Center. So they can always call in and hear a caring voice, but now they have the opportunity to have at least some virtual face-to-face. -face. The other thing that we're doing is we're working through um, avenues like Project ECHO and uh, through telehealth to try and get ourselves out there and staying in touch with the cancer treatment centers and staying in touch with the oncologists things that we used to be able to do with face-to-face -face patient navigation, we had to take our navigators out of the hospital. And then as we looked at cuts in our, in our donations, we had to cut the navigator program. But in South Region, and we're looking at doing this across the country, we're working with a, patient nav a virtual patient navigation company and they are able to see many more patients than our patient navigators could. And of course, our patient navigators were in, in some really hard hit underserved hospitals 
but they weren't everywhere. So the thing that's exciting about this is telehealth and telemedicine has made providers more willing to refer patients to things like this, and it's made companies and health plans more willing to pay for it. If you cannot get in to see your provider as often as you'd like to, then you've got somebody that can call you, that can video chat with you, that can text you, and you're setting some goals. They're helping patients deal with financial toxicity, which has always been a problem with cancer. You know that. Now that people are losing their job or they're furloughed or they're at 50% pay, I mean, it's a horrible economy right now. And imagine being a cancer patient in that. So they're helping them find medication assistance. They're helping them find lodging assistance, helping them find transportation, helping them find, you know, deal with the symptoms, things that maybe they would have been able to go into the cancer treatment center and deal with the nausea, all the things that come, the side effects of cancer treatment. Doctors are reticent to bring them in for that, but these are people who can talk through them and work on symptom management. And then obviously we are still doing to the greatest degree that we can transportation. We had to stop doing vendor transportation because we could not take the risk of a cancer patient being in the car of a Lyft or an Uber. And you know, CDC recommended not doing that. We had to temporarily stop our road driver program because of course we could not expose cancer patients or the volunteers but we're looking to start that back up in September and we're extremely excited about that because that road program is a lifeline to so many patients. Then um, our Hope Lodges, we are hoping to, hoping to open back up, but it's not gonna be as soon as we had hoped because you know, we have to ride the wave of this, of this epidemic, this pandemic, we have to. We cannot bring immunosuppressed people to live together. So that's a huge hit for ACS. But our Hope Lodges are still there. We're currently um, outfitting them to protect patients as much as possible to look, can we possibly bring patients in, maybe fill up a third of the lodge, not have the lodge at capacity. So that's, that's a big effort for us as well. And um, I think that my recommendation is, yeah, we've had to stop some things, but give us a chance. Call that 1-800 number, go on the website, and give us a chance to help meet your need because we're definitely trying to adapt our patient services to COVID-19, which means some things have gone away, but new things have come from it. Well, knowing so many great people at the ACS, and I am one of your 1.5 million volunteers who works and joins with you guys all the time. You have an amazing organization that has really changed the landscape, but there's lots of work to do. As you've yeah. stated, there's lots of new challenges that we're going to have to all collectively wrap our heads around. There's going to be some of the old that's great, but there's also going to be some of the new that's great. Yeah. And it's going to be the wisdom amongst us that really makes a choice uh, as to what we, what we keep and what we adapt. Yeah. But I, I have a question, because you and I have known each other. We've had a good time. We, we're, we're folks from the South. What's the best piece of advice that's ever been given to you in this cancer space that we work in? Because you haven't faced cancer, but you certainly have had an intimate exposure with a life-threatening disease that I think most people would have 
thought even worse than cancer at a time. What's the best piece of advice for folks facing adversity right now? They'll stop reaching out. Um, a cancer diagnosis is difficult in the best of times. And I have, my dad died of cancer. He died in this, in this house that I'm, I'm coming to you from because, you know, as you delay cancer, the impact can be great. He had delay cancer. And so basically we were just saying, live your life, daddy, come here. Cause that's what we call our dads in the South. We call them daddy or daddy, but don't stop reaching out. And, and because I think that the social isolation, the anxiety, and especially people who might be used to having their cancer treated a certain way and now it's being treated differently and the worry that comes with even delaying anything, forget radiation or chemo, just delaying anything with cancer because we do, we depend on can we depend on medicine to help us. We should. Medicine has made tremendous advancements in the treatment for cancer. But don't assume that somebody is does not have resources to help you. I'm sure people are reading Cancer Society's funds are down. They're having to reduce staff. They're having to reduce services. But Whitney, it would take me days to tell you everything that the American Cancer Society still does. So for the cancer patients and their caregivers, do not stop reaching out to us. Give us a chance for us, our volunteers, the providers that we partner with to find some solutions for you because we're still here. I'm sitting in front of this computer every day longer than I was before. So we might not have our local offices for you to go to, but we are still here and we still want to help. Well, that's great advice. And I, I think I could say that if you were to finish the sentence, the secret to a successful cancer fight is reaching out and not being afraid. And that goes back to that courage theme that you'd spoken about so it much takes earlier. A lot of courage to fight cancer. It takes a tremendous amount of courage for cancer to, to, to face the void and say, I'm going to keep walking forward. Well, Letitia, you have helped all of us understand how to develop and maintain and push that positive attitude with your personal story that you've been so kind to share with us but also your professional journey and your leadership uh, throughout there. Kentucky still wants to become part of the Southern region again. And I don't know uh, how we're going to do that, but I think if you're in charge, we can all look forward to that date. Well, first I'm getting rid of the Mississippi state flag, Whitney, and then I'm coming for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. <laughs> hey, Letitia, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule and sharing your story with us on Cancer Fight. I know that it'll be of great value to folks. And I want to echo the American Cancer Society is out there every day working for you. So take Letitia's advice, reach out. And if you need help for you, a family member or your community, think about the American Cancer Society. Again, Letitia, thanks for coming on Cancer Fight. Whitney, thank you and for everything you do. Thank you for being with us today on Cancer Fight. To keep up with our work, follow Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all major social media platforms and visit our website, 
kickingbutt.org. Special thanks to our producer, Keaton Jones, and our director, Maggie Cunningham. Until next time, fight on, cancer warriors.